the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we join Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in a study of the book of Leviticus. God is continuing to lay out how He is to be worshipped. God gave the Israelites instruction on how they were to conduct the sacrifices and offerings. In Leviticus chapter 1, we saw the burnt offering. In Leviticus chapter 2, we studied the grain offering. Chapter 3 gave us information on the peace offering. And now, here in chapter 4, we join Pastor Will in studying the sin offering, wrongs that have been committed unintentionally. Remember, the very Hebrew title for the book is, And the Lord Called. And so the meaning of the book of Leviticus is that we are called to be holy, called to be his people, called to be set apart, called to be different. We talked about the importance of that a little bit this morning, but we've been looking at this all throughout these offerings so far in the book of, beginning of the book of Leviticus. Remember, Leviticus is a continuation of Exodus, so it picks up where Exodus finishes off, and yet its focus is different. While Exodus focused on God's promises to this new nation of Israel, Leviticus focuses on what kind of relationship they're to have. Because God is unique and pure, his people were to live that way too. And Israel would demonstrate that holiness, that different life and how they approach their God. It wouldn't be like the pagans with their various types of offerings and all and their various rituals and celebrations. God would do it differently. And so they would be set apart and they would bring up fascinating conversations. Oh, you got Israelites, you're having your feast to the Lord. What, what, what are you doing? Are you doing it like we do, you know, doing it like this, you know? And, and no, we don't do that. We don't do that at any of our feasts, really. What do you do? And then they would explain it. Why do you do that? Well, let, let me tell you, because everything had meaning. Everything had purpose. In the book of Leviticus, as God is showing them how they're going to be different, he starts off by explaining the various offerings that they could bring. We see that there's five major offerings. Three were voluntary. You didn't have to bring them. It was your choice. And two were required. We've looked at the voluntary ones, the burnt offering symbolizing your full surrender to God, the meal or meat or grain offering that was symbolizing your service to God. Then the peace offering, which was really just to hang out with God. It meant a fellowship or a relationship offering. And now tonight we're going to look at the the final two, which was the required offerings, which was the sin and the trespass offering. One of the reasons Leviticus is so important is because it builds a foundation for us to understand very important truths. One of the truths that has come under attack, not necessarily recently, it's been recast recently, is the idea of substitutionary atonement. The idea that Jesus paid our penalty on the cross, that he died for our sins on the cross. Frequently you hear people say, that's a horrible thing, that God would punish someone for our sins. So they say, they kind of focus on Jesus' sacrifice in the sense of his example, that you know he laid down his life for us, which frankly, I think that's the dumbest decision ever that anyone made to say, how can I prove what sacrifice looks like. I know, I'll die. That's fine if you're dying for something, but if you're just doing it to show what sacrifice is, we call that a waste. Someone dies for something, but but other people die in the process. We don't usually talk about it as a sacrifice. You think, oh, it wasn't for anything. 
On the other hand, when someone dies and other people get to live, then guess what? We call it an awesome, marvelous sacrifice. Jesus did not waste his life on the cross. He paid the penalty for our sin. And so it's important. The reason you know, we, people, now sometimes you hear that and you go, oh, that makes sense. We should sacrifice for one another. And Jesus was our example. But if you, you don't understand Leviticus, you might think that. But if you come to Leviticus, there's no way you would ever think that. Because when we get to the sin offering and the trespass offering, we see very clearly that this is for our actions and that something else is paying the price for it that we might be forgiven. All pointing forward to Christ's ultimate sacrifice on the cross that our sins be wiped away forever. Chapter four, Leviticus. We'll start with the sin offering. Verse one. And the Lord spoke unto Moses saying, speak unto the children of Israel saying, if a soul shall sin through ignorance against any of the commandments of the Lord concerning things which ought not to be done and shall do so against any of them, and then what's going to happen is you can say, if he's a priest, this is what he has to do. If he's a ruler, this is what he has to do. If he's the common person, this is what he has to do. And if it's the whole congregation that did it, this is what they have to do. So verses 1 and 2 are kind of just a general statement on sin offerings. And it describes for us what the sin offering is. It mentions here, if a soul shall sin through what? Ignorance. We used to play this game, and I can't remember what it was, with a dartboard. And normally when you figure with a dartboard, you want to hit the bullseye, right? But we played a game where you weren't aiming for the bullseye, you were actually aiming for certain numbers. I don't remember what it was, and if it's like a, like a gambling game or something like that, then just erase this on the tape. But the idea was is you'd have to hit a nine or you'd have to, you know, you'd have to hit something specifically. And so you would be aiming for that specific number. And if you missed it, you missed the mark. That's what the word here for sin means. It means to miss the mark. And then it mentions through ignorance. God has a standard. And if you were to wake up and say, Lord, I want to serve you today. I want to be a, a good Israelite. I want to, I want to honor you with all I do. And you're aiming for a mark. You're aiming for a specific spot. And, and it says yet through ignorance, which means to inadvertently sin or to unintentionally sin, to make an error. And that happens. There are times when we say things and we get completely misunderstood. You hurt somebody's feelings like, oh man, that was totally not what I meant at all. And yet you still did hurt someone, right? You still did incur wrongdoing. Something wrong happened even though there was no intent to harm or intent to do something wrong. The Lord says, well, if that happens, then here's what you have to do. And the first group he starts off with, if they sin unintentionally, he says, it's the priest. And so in verse 3, he says, if the priest that is anointed. So these are unintentional sins. These are not sins that you knew what you were doing was wrong and you did it anyway. You know, I'm mad at you and I know they really get upset when I say this, but I'm saying it anyway. That's not what this is talking about. This is when you blow it and you weren't intending, you were trying to do the right thing, but you messed up. You fell short, you missed what you were aiming for. He says, if the priest does that, it says here, the priest that is anointed do sin according to the sin of the people, then let him bring for his sin, which he has sinned. How many times does God remind us it's sin? I mean, four times there you see the word where he's saying, no, it's still sin. Even though you didn't mean it, it's still wrong. If that happens, he shall bring a young bullock without blemish unto the Lord for a sin offering. Now that's interesting because that's the upper tier of sacrifices. That was an expensive sacrifice. And the idea here is that when a leader like this sins, it's a big deal. And it is, unfortunately. I wait, you know, sometimes when these politicians get up, some of these things come out about them and you're like, man, I, I'm glad I don't have that type of a spotlight you know, on me. 
somebody's digging for information on that person to find something wrong with. Yet, the Lord sees everything that we do. He knows it. So we should always be trying to live for him. But the reason why a leader has to be really careful, particularly in this case, a spiritual leader, he has to be really careful is because you can stumble a lot of folks because they're looking to you as an example. When he blew it, he had to bring a bullock. And it says, without blemish unto the Lord for a sin offering. He had to select the perfect animal for a sin offering, no blemish. It had to be a bullock. And then he shall bring the bullock now unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand upon the bullock's head and kill the bullock before the Lord or in the Lord's presence. He would not do the killing, the priest would, because it mentions here now the priest that is anointed shall take the blood and and do all this stuff. What's interesting here is when you blew it like that, you couldn't just fix it at home. You couldn't just go out and say, okay, Lord, I I blew it, so I'm going to go get my favorite bull and... And we're going to, you know, sacrifice him to you and, and do it right here. No, you had to take that bull and you had to make the long walk wherever it was in Israel at the time to the tabernacle. You're a priest walking up with a bullock. Everybody's thinking, what did he do? You know, that's a priest, man. He's supposed to be the example. What did he do? But that bullock that you're bringing up there, whereas the common person would bring a lamb or a goat, it'd be a reminder of the seriousness, that to be an example, to watch your tongue, to be on your guard, to not make these kinds of mistakes. So he would bring him all the way to the door of the tabernacle. Had to do it God's way, not his. Had to do it at God's house, not his house. And when he gets there, it says he shall lay his hand upon the bullock's head and kill the bullock before the Lord. The time there of identifying with the offering. We talked about this is something that happens with every offering, the sense of you're going to take my place because I'm a sinner. The difference is in this particular instance, he would have to come and confess the specific sin that brought him there. So he would come and he would lay his hand on that animal and he would say, I am here today because of this that I did, Lord. You tell us not to do this, and I didn't mean to do it, Lord, but I did do it. I did do it, and I fell short, and I'm so sorry. Will you please forgive me? I'm asking you to accept this offering on my behalf. I know what I deserve, Lord, for my actions. Will you take this instead? And then they would kill the animal and butcher the, you know, the animal we'll see in a moment and and offer some to the Lord, and then you know, do something else with what remained. So the offer's job had to be to select that perfect animal, bring it to the tabernacle, confess your sin, and then kill the offering. And as that's done now, verse five, the priest's job, priest that is anointed shall take of the bullock's blood and shall bring it to the tabernacle of the congregation. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and he will sprinkle of the blood seven times before the Lord before the veil of the sanctuary. And then the priest shall put some of the blood upon the horns of the altar of sweet incense before the Lord. And when it says before the Lord, it means in the Lord's presence. So he's going into the tabernacle to do this. I'll explain that in a second. And he shall pour all the blood of the bullock at the bottom of the altar of the burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. The priest then would catch the blood, just like the other blood offerings, the other animal sacrifices, and he would bring it into the tabernacle. But it mentions here something we haven't seen before. He would dip his fingers in the blood, and then he would sprinkle it seven times before the Lord. And he mentions specifically where? Before the veil, uh, the veil of the sanctuary. And remember... You have to go back a little bit to the tabernacle. Tabernacle is a big tent, big, huge rectangular tent. You come inside the door on the east side. And as you come in, there's a large brass altar there where they would burn the meat. There'd be this little covered tent. And in between the altar and the tent, you'd have this big tub where the priests would do their washings, you know, because butchering is not exactly clean work. Once you would go through the curtain into the covered tent, you'd be in what's called the holy place. In front of you, if you're facing here on the right, you would have the uh, table of showbread. On the left, you'd have the golden menorah. And then right in front of you, there'd be another curtain. But in front, right against the curtain would be a, a golden altar of incense. 
course, inside the veil would be the what? Holy of Holies, right? With the Ark of the Covenant. Priest did not go in there. So he would take this blood from the animal and he would sprinkle seven times the veil that was there. And then he would put some of that blood upon the horns of the altar of sweet incense, that golden altar that's inside the holy place. And normally no blood sacrifice would be placed there. In fact, the only time we're going to see this is with the priest. The reason it's done with the priest is because he can't minister there unless it's taken care of. He's the one who's serving the people. He has to go in there and he has to have the Lord. He's the one praying for the people. He's the one serving the people. All of that has to be cleansed and sanctified anew and afresh. When a leader, a spiritual leader sins, it affects the people of God. The Lord says, you need to fix this whole mess so that you know you can be a good example once again. This was a big deal for him. Very different than what would happen if someone else sinned. And so there's more instructions. Now when he was done with that, the spritzing, and then he put it on the horns of the altar, they were just these golden tips where the incense would burn. He would touch there. Then he would go back outside into the open area where the altar of sacrifice was. And then he would pour all the blood at the bottom of the altar. That's where all the blood would always go. And the idea is it's being offered to the Lord there. Verse 8, now we see God's portion. And he shall take off from it all of the fat of the bull for the sin offering, the fat that covers the inwards, and all the fat that is upon the inwards, the guts and then the fatty substance that held the guts together, the two kidneys and then the fat that's upon them, which is by the flanks and the call above the liver with the kidneys, it shall he take away. As it was taken off from the bullock of the sacrifice of peace offerings, like last week we learned, and the priest shall burn them upon the altar of burnt offerings. So all the fat went to God. So in the sin offering, all the fat, just like the peace offering, would go on the altar, and the idea was it's burning the on the altar. If it burned up, then God had accepted the sacrifice. So now we go down to verse 11 and here's where things get a little different with the meat and whatever's left of the animal. It says, and the skin of the bullock. It says, and all his flesh with his head, his legs, his inwards, his dung, even the whole bullock shall he carry forth without outside the camp unto a clean place where the ashes are poured out and burn him on the wood with fire where the ashes are poured out shall he be burned. Obviously, you imagine each day they would at least have a few offerings every day because you had the burnt offering in the morning and the evening. So you'd have at least a couple animals barbecue in there every day, and that would create ashes. They would take those ashes out to a clean place, I'll explain what that is in a moment, outside the camp, and that's where they would be. That way they wouldn't just collect under the altar every day. When you take the fat off God's portion, he says, you take everything else and you bring it to the same place where you dispose of the ashes. That's a lot of meat that could have been used to feed somebody that they would normally eat. And the Lord says, no, nobody's eating this. It's all going to be taken outside the camp to a clean place. Realize inside the camp where Israel was, that was where all the people were. If you became ceremonially unclean for some reason, you had to go outside the camp because if you became leper or something like that, so you wouldn't infect anybody, you would have to go outside the camp. If you became ill in a way that was contagious, we'll get to more of that in Leviticus, you had to go outside the camp. And the idea was you don't infect anybody. Spiritually, it would speak to the fact that when we talk about sin, sickness is evidence not of specific sin in our lives, but there's a fact that we live in a fallen world and none of that could be in God's presence. God is holy. The Bible says flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God. Nothing that is imperfect, nothing that is even comes short in the slightest of way can approach unto him. All of that had to be taken out to a designated area where there would be unclean. But outside the camp, these ashes would be placed in a spot far away from them too. 
They would be deposited in a ceremonially clean area. And then all this stuff would be taken there and burned up completely. So we're talking not just well done, well gone. It was just completely burned up. So there'd be nothing left and no one else would eat anything. Now, when you think to yourself, wow, that's a ton of food gone. I mean, an animal skin, it could be used for clothing, everything, stuff that would normally go to provide for the priest's family. And the Lord says, no, all of it is burned up. And I think the reason the Lord did that is to show us the exceeding sinfulness of sin. One of the things I hear people frequently say is, I just think God's a little harsh, or I don't really understand why it's a big deal. Yeah, we sin, everybody sins. God doesn't. God doesn't at all. And when we do any of the things, whether they're big or small, they're a horrible thing to him. You remember when Adam and Eve sinned? It doesn't seem like a whole lot. They ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It doesn't seem like much. I mean, how many times do we do something like that every day? We know we're not supposed to do something. God tells us not to do it. We do it anyway. There's not a whole lot of fallout from it. We just kind of go on with our lives. And yet the Lord, what does he say to Adam and Eve when he comes looking for him? When he finds him, he says, Adam, what have you done? I mean, there's a, a sense of, have you even comprehended what you've done? And so the Lord, every time this would happen, all of it would be burned. When that priest was bringing it out, burning everything, it would just, it'd be in front of him thinking, this could have fed a family, and yet realizing just how horrible and ugly and what a, a waste sin is. Totally opposite of what God designed and intended for us. And so it would all be burned outside there. That's what the priest had to do if he sinned. In verse 13, now if the whole congregation, so now this is a national sin. If the nation of Israel sinned through ignorance, and the thing be hid from the eyes of the assembly, and they have done somewhat against any of the commandments of the Lord concerning things which should not be done, and they're guilty, when the sin which they have sinned against it is known, then the congregation shall offer a young bullock for the sin and bring him before the tabernacle of the congregation. The same thing. Maybe the nation's unaware of something they've done that's wrong, that's displeased the Lord. He says, if this is going to be the case, and he brings it to their attention, I don't know if he sends a prophet or somebody just says, you know, the word says this and we're doing this. If that's the case, the Lord says, well, to get right with me, this is what you have to do. So the nation, they would have to bring a young bullock and the nation would be represented in verse 15. It says, by the elders. And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands upon the head of the bullock before the Lord and the bullock shall be killed before the Lord. They would represent, the word elders there means those who are in authority. So these would be the rulers of each tribe. They would be, you know, the people of responsibility and authority among the nation. So they would have to come and they would do the same thing as the priest. They'd have to get a perfect animal. They'd have to come to the tabernacle, couldn't do it, city hall or something like that. They had to come God's way. They had to identify with the offering and in doing so saying, Lord, this thing is having to die because of our sin. That we as a nation have gone away from you. How do we pray for our nation? I mean, I know scripturally there are certain things that are very clear. We pray that we can have a peaceable life, right? We pray for our leaders. The Bible tells us, commands us to do that. But as you see the culture deteriorate over time, you wonder, like, Lord, how should we pray specifically? The only thing I keep being drawn to in the scriptures is when the Lord says, judgment starts in the house of God. Every time I think about, Lord, you know, this is horrible, this is horrible, this is horrible. And the Lord just comes back to me and he goes, Lord, Will, how are you shining? Even to the nation of Israel, the Lord said to them, if my people are called by my name, the people of Israel, if they will humble themselves, if they will repent, if they'll turn back to me, then I'll forgive and heal their land. And while the nation of the United States is not Israel and that scripture can't directly apply to us, as Christians, I think the Lord would have us turn inward again and say, Lord, how can I be more yielded to you? How can I be turning away from the things that displease you and be walking more closely to you? And really, I think that's, as I ponder and I think, you know, what will, what will turn a nation that is, seems 
for lack of a better term, hell-bent on going away from the Lord, how do we, how do we affect change? And, and what I keep seeing in the scriptures as I pour over this is it, it's through our lives. It's, it's through our testimony, through the impact we have on the everyday people that, that we interact with as they see Jesus in us. And so more and more, I'm just praying, Lord, help me to shine. Help me to be different. And there, as the Lord points out, Lord, I, I choose to change. I, I repent. Lord, I, I cry out to you. I want to be a light and a testimony. For the nation here, these leaders, they had to do that. They had to come and say, Lord, we're here because as a nation, we went away from you. But we're here saying, Lord, as examples for the nation, we're going to stand in the gap for the nation and say, no more. Lord, it's been brought to our attention what we have done wrong. And so now we turn back to you. And we do this as representatives of our nation, Lord, we stand in the gap. I think that's one of our jobs. The Bible tells us that we're ambassadors for Christ. I think we stand in the gap for a world that doesn't know him and doesn't know any better. So they would confess that whatever the sin was that the nation had done against the Lord. And you think, well, that's, why should I be confessing things that my nation has done as if I'd done it? Daniel does that in Daniel chapter 9. I've always been blown away by this, but Daniel chapter 9, verses 3 and 4, he'd been reading the scriptures and he knew that the time was coming soon, that the scripture would be fulfilled, that they were going to return back to Israel from Babylon, Daniel began to pray. And this is what he said in verses three and four. And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. These three elements were signs of repentance. They were outward signs of inward repentance. And I prayed unto the Lord my God and I made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and awesome God, Keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments, we have sinned and have committed iniquity. What's his we stuff? Daniel didn't do anything wrong, you know? What's his confession to make? Every time we see him, he's just a godly man. In fact, Ezekiel brings up, God speaking to Ezekiel says, you know, he brings Daniel up as an example of a godly man. He said, even if there were more Daniels and everything like that, I'd still wouldn't, you know, forgive the nation and not bring them into Babylon. And yet here's Daniel confessing. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. We have rebelled. Neither have we hearkened unto your servants. O Lord, verse 7, righteousness belongs unto thee, but unto us he identifies. That's what the elders had to do here. They had to identify with the whole nation and say, Lord, we have blown it. Even if maybe they hadn't been the specific one to do so. Took responsibility for it. And they killed the animal before the Lord. Verse 16, back in Leviticus 4, the priest that is anointed. It's interesting. I don't recall that phrase anointed being in the previous offerings, but it makes mention of it here. I think there'll be significance when we get to our application of how it points to Jesus. Priest that is anointed shall bring of the bullock's blood to the tabernacle of the congregation. And the priest shall dip his fingers in some of the blood. He shall sprinkle it seven times before the Lord, even before the veil. Again, this is national sin going on, requiring national repentance and national restoration of their relationship with God. So he went into the holy place and he did the same thing. And he shall put some of the blood upon the horns of the altar, which is in the presence of the Lord. That is in the tabernacle of the congregation. Then he'll come back out and pour out all the blood at the bottom of the altar, the burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Then verse 19, we see the God's portion again. He shall take all of his fat from him, burn it upon the altar, and he shall do with the bullock as he did with the bullock for a sin offering. So shall he do with this 
So in other words, you'll take everything outside the camp again, everything that's not the fat, everything that's not God's part, you'll take it outside the camp and make an atonement for them and it shall be forgiven them. He shall carry forth a bullock outside the camp and burn him as he burned the first bullock. It is a sin offering for the congregation. And so here we are introduced to this idea of atonement. The word here means a covering. He shall make a covering for them and it shall be forgiven. They will be pardoned for their sin. The sprinkling of the blood seven times, seven has always been the number of completion. Seven has always been a number that's been used for completion. And seven times here, it would speak of complete restoration between God and man who had been separated by their sin. The complete restoration of God and the nation of Israel. And of course, the burning of the fat, again, it would signify restoration now of fellowship between God and Israel, that they would be okay again, that, that God would not have to judge them for their sin because they had made things right with him. They had confessed it. Next, verse 22, we see what happened if a political leader had sinned. Verse 22 says, when a ruler, and the word just there means a leader. So when a leader had sinned, done somewhat through ignorance, so this would be a civil leader, against any of the commandments of the Lord his God concerning things which should not be done, and he's guilty, or if his sin wherein he has sinned, come to his knowledge. So either if you do something, ah, oh, I'm not supposed to do that, ah, uh, I blew it. Or if you do something and don't realize it, then someone else brings it to your attention, he says, either way, you have to bring his offering, a kid of the goats, a male without blemish. Interestingly, they don't have to bring the big bullock. So apparently God's opinion of spiritual leaders is a little bit higher than those of civil leaders. I don't know if that's true. Makes me feel better. And he shall lay his hand upon the head of the goat and kill it in the place where they kill the burnt offering before the Lord. It is a sin offering. So the same thing, the offerer would have to select a male goat without blemish you know, for the offering, bring it to the tabernacle, God's way, not his way. Identify with the offering, confess his sin, the offering would be killed. Verse 25, the priest, the same job. He shall take of the blood of the sin offering with his finger. But here he won't go inside because this is an individual. It's not, a, it's not considered a spiritual thing because he doesn't stand in the gap for the people in the way that the priest would, which shows that the requirements for a civil leader are not as high as that for a spiritual leader. Frequently, I think Christians have been critiqued for saying, well, you just want somebody as perfect as a civil leader. And, and I think that would be wrong for us to want that. First off, that person doesn't exist. They don't exist in this pulpit either. What you're looking for in the character of someone who's a civil leader is is someone who is uh, just a a good man, someone who is a person of character. You look all throughout the Old Testament, it says, find someone of good report, somebody who doesn't take bribes, somebody that can be counted on, somebody that's not an idolater, not a blasphemer, someone that's got general good character that can be an example to the people and make wise decisions. And I think that, you know, allows us at times to, we don't have to find the, you know, like, would you vote for a non-Christian? I think I'd be fine to do that if they're a person of character. Jesus was offered once for all so that we could have atonement for our sins. We owed a debt we couldn't pay. Jesus paid a debt he didn't owe. Christ died in our place out of love for us to glorify God the Father. You can always call us and ask for any physical assistance or spiritual need. We would love to pray for you. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.